Welcome to another episode of the Uyghur History Project. In this episode, we are excited to have Professor Eric Schlussel from George Washington University, author of Land of Strangers, The Civilizing Project in Qing Central Asia. Xinjiang, a region in northwest China and home to the Uyghur people, has been a topic of controversy due to its complex relationship with China. In recent years, much attention has been given to the ethno-national dimension of politics in Xinjiang. However, our guest, Professor Schlussel, offers a fresh perspective on Xinjiang's history and its relationship with China. Through his extensive research, Eric explores the economic and legal engagement between China and Xinjiang in the 20th century, shedding light on the lesser-known aspect of the region's past. And now, let's begin our Q&A. Many people see China's problem with Xinjiang as an ethnic conflict between the Chinese and the Muslims. Why is this simplification so persistent in the public imagination? Well, I think that it begins as a matter of political advantage. It is politically advantageous for various states, not just the Chinese state, to represent conflict as something which is inherent, right? Uh, and to identify it as the work of a shadowy force that presents an existential threat. Um, the harder the border seems to be between us and them, the more a politician or a general or military leader can justify the use of extreme force and extreme measures to accomplish the goal of defense. One of the obsessions of the 20th century Chinese state is tariff autonomy. You know, and this you know, basically making sure to get control over the ability to tax you know, and levy tariffs on traders coming across the borders. This was a real problem in Xinjiang, where for a long time, Hokandi traders, then under various treaties after the Opium Wars, you know, British and Russians had all these tax exemptions. And, you know, as you get into the very end of the Qing and the Republican period, governors of Xinjiang really perceived that they were losing a tremendous amount of money because of these tax exemptions. And that it was unfair for these foreign empires, and it was unfair for these foreign empires, to drain the wealth of the Qing. They saw it as a, increasingly as a violation of sovereignty. So, for example, in 1918, there's an uprising that breaks out, I argue, because of shifting, because of economic and environmental change on the local level and competition between Chinese merchants and local actors. But Yang Tsangxin, who was then the warlord governor of the region, presents it as foreign forces invading the motherland and you know, the evil influence of these empires who are trying to undermine us with the, these tax advantages. Um, and he does so because it's politically advantageous for him to make that characterization, um, because it enables him to reject foreign trade and to push back against uh, this kind of encroachment. We see that, I think, across the across the 20th century. Um I think there's, especially after 1949, this idea that any kind of unpatriotic activity uh, in Xinjiang must be the work of someone who's fundamentally opposed to the project of the Chinese state. And we've documented, and I, I think this is accurate, that a lot of the actual discontent in the region up until, you know, about the year 2009, mainly stemmed from local problems, economic problems, police abuse, um, especially police abuse, right? Corruption, the same causes of protests you get in other places in China, but the state would characterize it as a work of splitists or nationalists or, or later on after 
when it became acceptable to blame everything on terrorism, on terrorists. And I think that it's it's a convenient way to simplify a narrative, to delegitimize the complaints of local actors, yeah, and to uh, justify a stronger crackdown on on any kind of uh, of local discontent. So I I think that's a really big part of it. That's a really big part of it. Xinjiang was the contested space between the British Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Qing Empire, and we know that imperial powers tend to overestimate their influence in shaping the course of local history. How did these empires engage with local actors, and how effectively did they exert their influence? I think on the borders of all of these empires, you see people who acted very independently. You know, Tuo Zongtang, I think, was really acting on for his own project. Arguably, the Russian uh, occupation of Ely happened despite the orders of the Russian Empire. You know, British India had to act with a relative degree of independence, especially the any representative they had in Kashgar, um, who naturally you know, didn't have, at this point, a telegraph link back to his superiors. All the news had to go over the mountains, and it took a very, very, very long time uh, for empires to coordinate what was happening in these regions. And even within the project of turning Xinjiang into a province, the Xiang army leadership didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand what was happening on the ground. And so local actors were able to manipulate these three empires pretty effectively. Uh, we can see this all over the place where, you know, the Qing couldn't figure out often if one of their own subjects was a Qing subject, a British subject, or a Russian subject. Were they a Turkic-speaking Muslim? Were they a Chinese-speaking Muslim? Were they not a Muslim at all? Were they actually from India? Like, it was actually really hard for these empires to understand what was happening locally. So I think the real story has to be told as one between these uh, lower-level actors, merchants especially, from Tianjin, who had taken advantage of the reconquest to collaborate with the new Xinjiang government and establish their own foothold in the region, were the ones running the logistics, moving goods around, and extracting wealth from the society. Actually, that's what I'm working on now, is just how that merchant intervention transformed local society. But then Turkic Muslim merchants were also taking advantage of that, maybe with not as much power or wealth, but they were also finding ways across the border and uh, you know, take advantage of what was happening. Clerics, similarly, because you asked about clerics, you know, they saw the resources of this new provincial state as a means to police the boundaries around their own communities. You know, uh, you can see in the archive how clerics could, you know, present something, a story to Qing officials and get Qing officials to react in certain ways that benefited them. So that's one thing we have to remember when you talk about empires, right? At the boundaries, especially. Boundaries are competing communities of interest, they're collections of resources, they're nested hierarchies of power. And much of the work of empire takes place on the local level, uh, even in the Qing, maybe especially in the Qing. Speaking of the lower level actors, how did they contribute to the flurry of economic activities in Xinjiang and the late Qing? And how did this enhance the empire's globalization and engagement with the world? Merchant power had long been at the center of the story of uh, sort of Qing power in the Northwest. Uh, Peter produced China Marches West demonstrates this really quite well for the Qing Jungar War, right? And then there's some later work which demonstrates even further that 
know, those merchant networks after the conquest was over maintained retained a lot of power in the borderlands. It's a familiar story, you know. It was it was Shanxi merchants who exploit Mongolian princes. It's uh, the merchants of Hunan who control tea trade in certain regions. This is long established. Um, how should I put this? So why did heightened commercial activity occur? So one reason was that, uh, again, transborder merchants, let's say from the British Empire, the merchants of Shikarpur, uh, whose work Scott Levi has documented uh, before, um, used their British subjecthood to take advantage of the relative poverty of East Turkestan, of Xinjiang, uh, to extract wealth from it, mainly through debt, through money lending. Andijanis, under Russian protection, did the same. Tianjin merchants, under the protection of the Qing, did the same. So all of a sudden, this region, which was highly porous, was being connected to uh, credit markets and centers for trade and the movement of goods in very different economies, you know, over the mountains. Uh, this very poor region was being connected to a place that had a lot more wealth. Meanwhile, those centers of wealth, you know, in South Asia, Central Asia, and on the coast in Tianjin were more connected to places like Manchester, where milled cloth was being made, right? Um, so actually, we see quite clearly in the, in the local record how the local weaving industry was even being displaced by the importation of cheap printed cotton cloth from the UK and from the Chinese coast, uh, much as in South Asia. Remember, the thing that Gandhi complained about very rightly, was that the British were replacing the local uh, textile industry with their own cheap imports and undermining the uh, ability of the Indian people to sustain themselves. And the same thing was happening in, in East Turkestan. Um, what did this mean in terms of engagement with the world? Now, the Qing noticed that this was happening. Because remember, one of the whole points of the reconquest was to make Xinjiang economically independent. They wanted autarky in the region. They wanted it to sustain itself. But now it clearly could they knew that the Russians were sucking silver out of Xinjiang. Uh, and actually, I just learned this recently, trading in places like Hiva, far to the west, there was demand for Chinese silver, which was being trucked all the way across Central Asia uh, to pay, in many ways, uh, debts to the Russian Empire. Um, you know, the Qing kept seeing Xinjiang as a crisis zone, but they didn't do a good job of handling it. They, they could tell something was going wrong. Um, but the solution on the part of Qing officials to every economic problem in the region was to give money to merchants and let them solve the problem. And the problem was the merchants were also taking advantage of the same situation. Like there was no solution to this simply because the Qing state was too weak to actually enact any kind of solution. Uh, so what role does playing the Qing's engagement with the world? I mean, one, I think this is one of the reasons why Xinjiang was never fully integrated into the Qing sphere. You know, the, the next state that could actually act in a serious way in the region was Sheng Shizai's warlord state in the 1930s and 40s under Soviet uh, control because it had Soviet resources. You know, uh, the campaign to reconquer the region was driven by foreign capital. You know, Zhuong Tang would never succeed without his merchant partner Hu Xuyan in Shanghai who had in turn helped him get loans from foreign banks like uh, Jordan Matheson and HSBC. Um, I think it means that these reconquests in the borderland were now tied in complex ways to global capital. And, uh, you know, the Qing, as I said, was 
sort of being undermined from the inside by actors who can now tie themselves to the outside world in, in new ways. How did the Qing Empire and the Xiang army attempt to manage the economic and social dispute through law? What did they perceive to be sources of social discord? And how did they put this understanding into law? The Xiang army community basically saw conflict, the worst kinds of conflict as they perceived them, uh, arose from problems of morality. And so they were very, were primarily interested in training local Muslims to be more moral people. And they propagated early on this, uh, they called the Li Kitabi, the Book of Li, which is Li, or rights, Li, right, uh, in Chinese. Their first move was to propagate a simplified version of the Qing legal code with passages that focused on family morality, combined with stories from the uh, um, 24 filial exemplars, right, a classic Chinese text. And the idea was that, you know, they would demonstrate that the core of the law was actually family morality. It was, it was traditional Confucian values as they saw them. Um, and so they also punished violations of family morality much more harshly. Now, this was not unique to Xinjiang. This was a, a, a special measure that had been implemented across the empire. And so you see it at work in the region as well, that people are being punished harshly, not because of their ethnic character or because their religious character. In fact, I found it was mostly Han Chinese being punished, in part because, you know, the Han Chinese men were largely unmarried and were thus seen by the same elite as being inherently more immoral or dangerous. So on the one hand, you have that. And on the other hand, the, this new government wanted to set up a, a normal province, as you would have in, I don't know, Hubei, somewhere like that. And so they wanted people to only bring their disputes to the Qing magistrate, the lowest level uh, um, appointed official, and not to local Islamic authorities. They wanted people to only come to the Qing magistrate, who had a certain understanding of law based on that set of principles. But the majority of people had engaged with Muslim jurisprudence, Hanafi jurisprudence specifically, and their norms and practices were already suited to that kind of petitioning and that kind of um, making of complaints to local authorities. Moreover, what we actually see is that despite the fact that Qing, the Qing law was supposed to replace Muslim law, actually Islamic courts reconstituted themselves in more durable and complex forms during this period, that people would engage in what we call forum shopping, going from one to the other or to other kinds of local dispute resolution mechanisms in order to handle their problems. Moreover, so Qing officials were officially not allowed to communicate with Islamic legal authorities. And in, I even have a case where an official consulted the local Muslim judge, Akazi, and he got punished for it. In fact, if we look at the local records, we find that Muslim legal authorities were even working in the Yemen. So I think that there's actually a large degree of local collaboration between these authorities on the ground. And so local people learned how to address their complaints in one way to one group with the help of translators and in another way to another group and to manipulate both systems to get the best possible outcomes. Uh, I even have one record from 1928. This didn't go into the book, but down in uh, Yengisar, in the deep south, there's a case where a Muslim man converted to Christianity and he was accused of apostasy. And actually, it was the Chinese magistrate who ordered him to convert back to Islam 
in order to preserve the peace locally. So I think that there is a lot more flexibility than we realize and a lot more collaboration and overlapping of interests between these different legal authorities. How was the Qing legal culture different from the Islamic legal culture? How did Qing legality impact the local society in Xinjiang? In short, Islamic law, uh, especially pre-post-colonial Islamic law, especially uh, fiqh or jurisprudence, it's not a legal code, it's a process of securing opinions and interpretations of law and fitting them to certain situations. And so it's a, it's basically a process of exegesis, of textual interpretation and consultation. Um, and local Muslim actors, when we do have records of this, you know, could think of that as being either very rational or very irrational, because a Qazi, a Muslim judge, could, uh, you know, read uh, the opinions in a very rational, very reasonable way and apply them consistently. Or they could be perceived as very, being very inconsistent and easily manipulated. Qing legal culture was, was quite different because there's a, a hierarchy of appeal in the Qing and of textual editing. That basically, so I have a case in the book where we have like nine witnesses to a crime in the initial uh, set of documents, but the magistrate and the yamen, the clerks, had to edit this account down to a simpler account that was much more clear cut and that would actually uh, induce the same, a certain kind of response from their higher ups. And if they didn't manage to do this, if they didn't manage to match the case and retell its story in a way that matched it to part of the Qing code, then their case would be rejected and sent back to them. Uh, at least certainly in the case of capital punishment, uh, when these cases were supposed to go all the way to Beijing, you had to be very careful about how you expressed the language. So you had to create a certain kind of um, judicial truth, as it were, or adjudicated truth, as we call it, to induce certain results. Here, the magistrate's goal was almost always leniency, to demonstrate the leniency of the state and to keep local people happy and, uh, you know, uh, reduce the risk of further violence. These two things were very, very different, and it took a, a long time for local people to figure out exactly how to manipulate one or manipulate the other, right? How did the Qing judicial procedure as a function in Xinjiang change the voices of the local subjects in the official Chinese history? That's the thing I'm getting at with uh, that that editing of a story that's from kind of a call it narrative crafting. We see it most clearly in the acts of translation where, okay, so the civilizing project, as I call it, focused on training Muslim men to read the Chinese classics with the idea that these men would see the lights of Confucianism and transform themselves into good Confucians. It, this is, again, one reason why it's really convenient or appropriate to compare this to other sort of colonial projects elsewhere. Um, these men largely acted as translators and interpreters, or tongshi in Chinese, known as tongqi in local parlance. And these tongqi were able to manipulate text across the cultural and linguistic boundaries between popular Islamic legal culture and official Qing legal culture. To do so, you know, they would rephrase uh, documents written in local language, in Chakatai or pre-modern Uyghur, if you will, and put them into the language of the state. Now, that's actually the exactly the kind of thing that happened all over China. 
If you do it, if you're in Guangdong, you don't speak Cantonese, you're already engaging in acts of translation and narrative crafting. So what they were doing was, you know, they weren't just translating to Chinese, they were translating to the language of the state. Yeah, and the categories of the state. What's interesting is that you can see in some of the documents in the archive of Torpan, the, the place where I studied for this book, um, marks, editing marks, crossouts and carrots and insertions, uh, where the clerks and the translators would take the initial text and manipulate it to better suit those narrative conventions and generic expectations. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I say the Beijing archive is actually not very useful for studying the local history of Xinjiang, because if most of what we know comes from that process of translation, then actually the Qing court didn't understand much of what was happening on the ground. They only got the stories people wanted them to hear. And that's that should really, really give us some pause when we try to use uh, imperial archives for local history. Thank you, Professor Shusso, for the very insightful conversation. We have come to the end of our episode. I thank everyone for your time, and remember to subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned to the next episode.